if you're not going to change your clinical behavior as a result of your case conceptualization, then there's no reason to do a case conceptualization. If you're going to do the same version of ACT or FAP or anything, if it doesn't change your behavior, then there's no sense putting the client through an, a, a pseudo-assessment. You look professional here. You know what you're doing. I can tell. These are all things for production properly. Yeah, post-production it is. Stuff. Super professional. All right. Uh, on that note, welcome back to Act Root to Fruit. Uh, my name is Marcel Tassara, and uh, I'm a psychologist, uh, non-congenital, trying to be behaviorist, uh, working to dig into the roots of the contextual behavioral sciences, and uh, and I've got some just amazing guides along the way. We're, um, I'm so grateful today to be joined by Dr. Bill Follett from uh, University of Reno. Thanks, Bill, for, for joining me today. Well, thanks. Glad to be here. It's yeah. University of Nevada at did Reno. I, at Reno. What did I yeah. say? University of Reno? Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the ACT world, you guys are big enough. You're, you, you know, there's no exactly. other University of Nevada. Yeah. Exactly. That's, that's what we tell UNLV all the time. <laughs> and I, I bet there used to be a, a LA before your name at some point. I think there probably was. I think there's an obscure way to get back to Robert LaFollette that was a Wisconsin senator long ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of which, Bob Kohlenberg's from Milwaukee. Is anybody yes, he is. he is. He is. My, my, my partner, who is from Columbia, thinks that I believe that I, everything is from Milwaukee, you know, because <laughs> how often I reference things from, from this, uh, this place. So anyways, um, so yeah, thanks for thanks for joining me. Bill Bill has been um, in this world of clinical behavioral analysis and outcome research um, for for a really long time, and uh, and like I mentioned uh, when I when I interviewed Glenn, who who um, you know you you've you've been in the room where a lot of this stuff has has come out of. So yes, yes, so. indeed. I I think I was in the room doing co-therapy with Bob Kohlenberg at one of the inspirational moments for functional analytic psychotherapy many years ago. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and you and Glenn are, are doing some really interesting work, which Glenn has agreed to come back and talk more about once I get uh, further along the line in, in the, the interpersonal behavioral therapy work. So I'm excited. Yes. About to get into that, but now I'm kind of more in, in the, the, the molecules. Um, like, so, so in terms of, of, uh, of being precise, where you see is, is, uh, uh, uh integral part for, for people to, to have a, a grasp of in terms of this functional language. I know you're right. You're, I think that's a really great question. And it's one that I think I get a little bit more um, focused on than lots of people do. So, you know, you spoke about, um, you know, Glenn Callahan and, and I, Glenn was, a uh, a student of mine, got his PhD with me years ago and just one of my very favorite human beings in the entire universe. I just, I love the guy. Yeah. And we have He's a great time. He, he, he is, um, but I think one of the things that we've 
paid attention to a lot in recent years is I think the the lack of attention to the theoretical underpinnings of what we do in some of the third wave therapies, which would include FAP and ACT, mm-hmm. and it was sufficiently in, troublesome to us uh, that we recently wrote this article on an alternative way of thinking about things in the, uh, called it interpersonal behavior therapy that appeared earlier in the year. Yeah. And there's not a lot that's distinctively different from what we call IBT from the, I think, the underlying philosophy of what was in the 1991 Functional Analytic Psychotherapy book that um, Bob and and Mae Vasai wrote, which Mm -hmm. I think is a a great book, but but not a great how to do therapy book. Um, but it had lots of principles in it, and the, okay. and the and the underlying ideas are in that. But I think have gotten to be underappreciated in importance as dissemination ramped up for uh, functional analytic psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. I'll just call FAP from now on. Yeah. And and I think the same thing happened in ACT to a, a degree, where if you go to uh, ACBS, for example, and listen to lots of talks, it's very hard to see where principles are being um, tested so much as where techniques are being demonstrated. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just my personal interest that I'm more, more interested in the link between what we do in therapy from, an, from a scientific explanatory um, process to the outcome than how it is um, we think about therapy as some kind of art that's, um, that's totally peculiar to the practitioner. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I understand the problem with disseminating therapy to you know, people who might be just less fascinated with the, with the science part of things and, and devoted to, to caring and helping people. I mean, I, I don't have any objection to that. Mm-hmm. It's just that I think it drifts to a different place than its roots started with. Okay. In, in the, um, the aspiration of, of just drawing people in, let's get them in the door potentially, and then they'll figure it out. You know, I, I don't, I don't feel like I know exactly what the process is that happens there, except that if you look at the behavior of people who disseminate therapies, for example, their behavior is just, is just human behavior. It's like anybody else's. I don't ascribe it an amazing motive to them. I think their behavior gets shaped by what gets the attention for them when they give talks. I see. Um, And it seems to be more interesting to people to hear clinical anecdotes or go through some set of um, exercises, which drive me crazy, by the way, at at these kinds of things. Yeah. Um, With little link between why we're doing this 
exercise to walk around the room and imagine people imagining you naked or whatever. Um, and, and how that's tied to the scientific principles underneath it gets more and more diminished in a way that I think people learn techniques more than mm-hmm. principles. And mm-hmm. I think that makes people pay more attention to topography versus function, which I can talk about if that's not too boring yeah. at some point in time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I, uh, on that note, you know, this semester I had some of my, my, uh, therapy, I had my therapy class. Um, we started out with some philosophy of science papers and Linda Hayes papers and, you know, boy, if looks could kill. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I get it. Yeah. No, it's, it's, you learn to see that glassy-eyed look of graduate students who say, what is this all about? And, you know, it's a problem in the following way. I got interested in what turns out to be best probably described as clinical behavior analysis um, from taking class from Bob Kohlenberg years and years and years ago when he was a fresh PhD out of UCLA and was extremely behavior analytically oriented. And it was the science that got my attention more than what the science was applied to. And, and uh, Ivar Lovas was doing his work with autistic children at the time. Mm-hmm. We watched some of those early films, which you should watch on YouTube now if you want to see the power of the analysis and how creative oh, yeah, people definitely. can be. I'll put some links in this, in our chat notes. Um, and it just, it just captured my attention. And so I've always been interested in the application of the science more than anything else because it leads to good outcomes. And, and I, I was willing to pay that overhead to learn the science. And, but that there's a selection bias in there that may select for a different set of interests mm-hmm than people who go in through a different route, who, who learn to uh, want to be helpful from a slightly different mindset. And I don't have any um, thoughts about which is better. They just have different outcomes, I think. And you, I would pick a path that emphasizes science kind of all the way through things. And someone who has a different initiation into the field would pick a path that emphasizes other things. Yeah. And yeah. Well, and, and I just want to to be forthright with where I am at is I'm kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum in my in my initiation, and then I saw the limitations in that in in terms of how how um, how I was functioning as a clinician, and that brought me that's bring, that's brought me back to this path that I'm on now, which is is trying to trying to metabolize as much of the science as possible. I think that's fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, so you mentioned clinical behavior analysis, and I did too. I'm, I'm wondering, like, and I kind of feel like right now in the in the CBS world that it's 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 a it's a, a hot term. You know, Emily's doing a lot of wonderful things in this area. How do you see it, the way? How do you see clinical behavior analysis versus functional now FAP versus IBT? If and and you can answer a different question if you're hearing one that's better than the one I'm asking right now. <laughs> I always do that. People ask me questions and I just pick the one I can answer. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I, I think 
I think clinical behavior analysis and I think the difference between FAP and IBT, for example, really has to do with how you approach um, the problem. So clinical behavior analysis is simply the application of behavior analytic principles to um, an, a, a neurotypical adult okay. or, or, or child for that mm -hmm. matter. I mean, in, in clinical behavior and behavior analysis, sorry, applied in lots of clinical situations where there's a developmental disability or something like autism, in those settings, you have much higher control over the environmental contingencies because people aren't in free feeding environments. I mean, if you've got an autistic child in the Lovas era where they were looking at severe autism and they didn't do the timing of the intervention quite right, um, initially anyway, these people were basically under institutional control. I mean, that's where they were many hours of the day. And so you had environmental controls and you were dealing with really fairly gross problems. By gross, I just mean large and palpable. Mm -hmm. um, you don't have to think about what functional class is banging your head against the wall. It is what it is. Yeah. Um, and just the topography itself is enough to get attention and seem like a reasonable target. As you get less control over people's environment, um, say in a psychotherapy kind of setting, you're dealing with a different set of controlling variables for change. Mm -hmm. You don't have as much access to what goes on outside the therapy room. But from my point of view, you still try to do the same sort of functional analysis, although clearly with less precision because you're, you're looking at either self-reports of what's going on, which is inherently unsatisfactory, or you learn to look closely at what's going on between you and a client, which is where FAP, I think, is fascinatingly powerful in terms of having sources of information that you can do a case conceptualization on, at least in one that gives you an idea of where to look for sources of influence for the problem that may, gives rise to and maintains behavior that doesn't work for the client, and watching what goes on between you and the client that brings about different behavior on their part. If you can analyze that technically, as opposed to with less precise language, I think you can do interesting and powerful work. So I have no idea what question I just answered, <laughs> if, if any at all. A better one than I ask, that's for sure. <laughs> where I'm, where I'm really trying to get, and and I'll just ask that question is is around this 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 idea of terminology and mid level terms. Oh, yeah. Looking, I mean, looking at the importance of of process, um, and and how that how that leads us to some concerns that someone like you might have around mid level terms. Yeah. So, middle level terms are just a complicated set of issues. Um, when we come up with a therapy, those of us who, you know, either study them or try to improve them or understand what's going on, we're looking at pretty basic scientific processes 
Um, so in, I'll, I'll stick with FAP mostly, I guess. You know, we're PhDs and we're turning out PhDs and even PsyDs, we're turning them out, I think, with an obligation to know some basic science behind what they do. If we think what we do is is art, then I don't see the reason to get a PhD particularly. If I, because we're not going to turn out identical artists. I mean, you can get a PhD in art, I guess. I don't know why I say that, but um, I think what we do is based on principles that we should know about, and uh, and that is the overhead that maybe makes people eyes glass over and and not enjoy it a tremendous amount but when you get into a really complicated clinical situation making sense out of that is much easier when you have a case conceptualization that's built on scientific principles and if you if you give those away and you use other explanatory mechanisms that are much removed from them, I think you lose precision and I think you lose the ability to, to make um, on, on the spot, and that doesn't mean like instantly, but where you are in therapy, the ability to say, what I'm doing isn't working for a particular set of reasons that if I step back from and look at in some detail, I might be able to identify and build a different strategy. And that's and it could be at the level of what it is I'm targeting in therapy isn't even the right thing. It may look like it, mm-hmm. but it but it isn't the right thing. Or the way I'm behaving isn't manipulating the kinds of environmental contingencies that I think would matter. Yeah. And so I, I've used the term topography enough times already. I just want to make sure that everybody's on board with that. Mm-hmm. Um, topography is just what a behavior looks like. Uh, it's just kind of the physical characteristics of it. And that's very different from function. That is, what is the, what is the behavior doing in the world at the moment? Mm-hmm. And you know, I have kind of a silly set of slides that I show when I'm talking about case conceptualization or assessment, where a, a, a client comes in and talks to the therapist and they, they say lots of things to the therapist, some of which, why you're really great and I really like that you don't make me talk about things just to, for the purpose of crying. And then another one where they come in and say, um, I'm, I'm, I've just taken a bottle of pills and had a drink of vodka before I came in. Do you think that's something we should talk about? I mean, and it just goes on. And essentially it's like a half a dozen different highly variable presentations of what the client is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the end, it's obvious to a a mythical supervisor that's in this scenario that what's going on is the client has a lot of different strategies to keep the therapist from pushing to talk about emotional um, distress. And they, they look 
they range from being late to session to being suicidal to complimenting the therapist to crying for an hour and if you pay attention to all those topographies which would be very difficult not to if you're sitting in the room in those situations as a therapist but if you step back and see those are all functioning to keep from doing the behavior that they need to be doing in order to move on that's a an incredibly important thing to be able to detect and if you think functionally about what's going on it's i think it's easier to see than if you think um, procedurally about what's going on like what should i be doing in this session what mm -hmm. kind of technique thing should i be doing so middle level terms i think take you away from that in in ways that i think are not good for the client and i think they're not good for the science and i think about this as a science that needs to progress okay. so and what, so I, just, what's your definition of a mid-level term mid-level term is one that is essentially made to i think communicate an idea to um, an an audience in the process of dissemination that should have some properties of making a link between an underlying process and a behavior that you would see in the real world from, okay. on the therapist side. No. But the difficulty is that, that those things will ha have a life of their own. So when um, Steve Hayes um, developed his middle level terms on the hexaflex and so forth, he, he did some nice things initially, like having words that didn't have a, a natural meaning in to the verbal community. So diffusion like isn't a real word. So it's just there, it lives and dies within the context of um, act. But whether you have a, a real word that has its own history or a made up word that doesn't have its own history, it will develop a history. Yeah. And so how people respond to that the first time it appears is going to be much different than if you go to an act workshop now and you hear those words. There is a huge history around them, a very powerful history in the setting in which you would learn those kinds of things. Okay. So middle level terms just gets, they, they, I think push us towards topography and lose function. And when I, when, in FAP, the awareness, courage, and love has, have become middle level terms. Mm -hmm. And for me, those are particularly unfortunate terms, um, primarily because I don't think the I don't think the terms to which they refer are very hard to learn in the first place. So act if you go through relational frame theory is complicated. And and the research paradigms are complicated to make sense out of um, for good reasons. I mean if you look at the work that um, Dermot Barnes Holmes and, and the um, the relational frame theory guys do it's it's meticulous in many ways but it's not light reading at the end of the day and 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I understand the overhead of getting into relational frame theory, but if you read some of the stuff that he, Yvonne Barnes Holmes talks about in her criticisms of, <laughs> there's the dogs talking. Yeah, yeah. Um, that that Yvonne Barnes Holmes is critical about middle level terms. It's um, it's an important concern, and even that article is not by reading. <laughs> But if you think about things like discrimination and uh, as recognizing a situation in which a behavioral experience consequences, that's you know the discriminative stimulus, the behavior, the consequence in operant terms, those aren't complicated things to think about. They don't need to be translated, I don't think, into a language that has an additional set of meanings in, to the verbal community so that um, I think awareness discrimination is pretty straightforward. I think I'm okay with that one. But courage and love have different connotations that come into the explanatory realm with their own meaning that you can't unbundle. Love, for example, I think is not a neutral word. It's not like diffusion that came in with no history particularly. Love comes in with a huge history for both the therapist and the client and the people in each of their verbal communities. So that I worry about those things not being a accurate representations of what it means to supply contingencies mm-hmm. and B that it doesn't bring in a whole bunch of complicating stimulus properties. When I say I'm acting in a loving way towards a client or to even say, and I've seen the examples in writing of this, um, the therapist saying to the client who feels unlovable, um, I love you. Mm-hmm. It's just not hard to see t- for me anyway, about what rabbit hole I can take people down. And I know many of the people in the FAP community, I love them. I mean, Bob Kohlenberg is just like one of the most important influential people in my entire life. Mm-hmm. And I just, I would give him a kidney, you know, and, and whatever, um, but I, 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 and others that I, I think have great hearts, and uh, but I think the movement has moved towards a different place, where some of the foundational principles just are in a not where I think the original ones are, and they have everybody has the right to kind of take things where they want to go. I think if you read the 2010 FAP book. Um, the green fat movement and, and, and the things Mavis was talking about in the end of that book are absolutely f- fab- are absolutely fabulous kinds of um, things to which one would want to work. Um, but those are different kinds of things than the ideographic goals that people come in with therapy. Um, and I think that movement's great. It's just a different place. Yeah. But certainly from a great heart. Yeah. And, and your, um, your, uh, proponent of this, this ideographic approach to understanding function. Yep. And, uh, um, how do you, how do you start to get people thinking in those ways when you're, when you're working with students and. Well, I, I think you have to teach people um, 
well, let me just qualify this saying I, I don't know um, perfectly how to do that uh, because I think some of it comes in with uh, people either have a history of trying to ask the question of why something is happening mm -hmm. from a an appreciation of there are reasons, identifiable reasons why we behave that are functioning in the here and now. They're not just all immutable historical kinds of features. I mean, certainly by the time you see people in therapy, there is an enormous history that shaped this behavior, right? I mean, we think people behave for reasons. Um, when Marsha Linehan talks about validation, kind of the important one that I pay attention to as opposed to some I don't, is you don't blame clients for behaving like they behave because we foundationally believe in a deterministic view of behavior. Now we could, we could go off in a long quibble about how much behavior feels determined and what's cultural and what's real. It's a different issue. Happy to have that discussion, but it's a different issue. Mm -hmm. But if you think people are behaving for reasons then you try to figure out what those reasons are in the here and now, because I'm trying to teach people to do a case conceptualization that focuses on the things that um, uh, Steve Haynes and Bill O'Brien talk about in their books on functional assessment, functional analysis. You look at things that are in the here and now that are important, meaning they, if you change those variables, you can affect a substantial amount of behavior change in the client. Um, causal, that is, if I'm trying to change one variable that I can manipulate, it will actually change a, a behavior that matters to the client, mm -hmm. not strict causality, but I don't care if I'm moving a third variable, if that produces a change, I don't care, that's still fine. Um, and then changeable, and changeable means there's stuff in the here and now that I can, I can alter. Doesn't mean that things in the past don't matter, it's just in understanding the client's narrative of how they are, where they are, is important to establish rapport and understand how they use words so that you're paying attention to the stimulus conditions that give rise to those words. But changeable means that there's stuff that you try to identify now that's a remnant, perhaps of a historical thing, or that it's going on currently, mm -hmm. that you can alter. And if you can't alter it, you can appreciate its, its historical value to the client and understanding their place in the world, but it doesn't matter in therapy. And I know that'll be misunderstood and you can call me back on another day and I'll try to clarify it again, but <laughs> it doesn't why, mean- Why will that be misunderstood? Well, it will, it will sound like I'm saying that people's history don't matter and mm. uh, it doesn't matter. And mm. I, I don't mean that. Yeah. Uh, what I mean is trying to make people make sense out of their history as if that's the thing that's crucial is not as important to me as making sense out of how that history affects them right in the moment mm -hmm. and what they're, what they're doing in response to stimulus conditions that yeah. make things go more usefully or less usefully for them. Yeah. How, how is that different than psychoanalysis? Well, I don't know enough about psychoanalysis. <laughs> okay, let me ask you then. How is that different than me talking about someone's childhood with them, trying to help them figure out, you know, why they are like they are? Well, because I'm, 
I, I'm not. It depends on what you, what the figure out why me, means to to you. Because okay. if you're trying to do it to just for the purposes of understanding how I am where I am at the moment, mm-hmm. doesn't tell me how to move to someplace different. Yeah, and okay. I'm interested in the moving to someplace different because that's why the client walks in the door. If they want to come in and do, you know, three hours a week of, of you know, uh, kind of European understanding their their life in the moment, but not not having a goal of changing that, you know, I can buy a boat and, and depend on you know weekly payments. I that's a good thing, mm-hmm. but. But understanding isn't isn't the goal that lots of clients have when that I see or supervise. It's wanting to be in a different place. So the why they are where they are is is maybe a, a necessary first step to get people. I'm not saying it is, but it may be a, an important first step for some people to get to the position that they want to know how do they, given where they are now, how do they get to a different place? And certainly, you know, one of the one of the things that one worries about when you do just a historical kind of explanation for why people are now explaining behavior is often a clinical problem. If if I if I say do something different, which is not how I would ever Mm -hmm. construct the the Mm -hmm. statement. And they say, I can't because I was ignored by my nanny or whatever, um, Mm -hmm. or many more realistic and terrible things. That explanation in and of itself has, will have a function and the function can either be um, sort of a motivating operation change if you if you create it correctly or help Mm -hmm. structure it correctly or it can just be a reason why they don't change i can't do this because Mm -hmm. i was um, abused as a child or i was ignored or i had a a adverse childhood event all those things are not uh, unimportant to people getting to where they are now but that exists in a long history of environmental contingencies. And the question is, if they want to move someplace different, what's going on in the here and now that's, or isn't going on that needs to be going on to make it um, an environment where people are open to looking at contingencies to change um, mm-hmm. towards something that they value. Okay. Yeah, so understand, understanding and change are not the same goals. So if you just if you just say want to say why I am like I am is a different question than given how I am, how do I be different? Mm-hmm. And the information that you as a therapist need to answer those two questions aren't the same. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know where that that leaves me right now. As I, I'm I'm thinking about this kind of you know uh, mouthful that you just said, and uh, and and my original my question about kind of starting to see the function of of behavior rather than just the topography, so that 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 steers how I interact with the client. 
Yeah, you know, I've seen a supervised uh, a bunch of uh, grad students over over the years, and you know they run across. I'm not a big diagnostic guy at all. In fact, I've written a bunch of articles that say it sucks. Um, but if you've seen someone who, in the vernacular, um, has a personality disorder, say, uh, you know the the clients that Marsha Linehan has yeah. done work with, um, and and I, you, that's called presidential now. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't get me started. <laughs> don't get me started. Your podcast will be off the air in a heartbeat. Um, <laughs> The, um, the the amount of apparent chaos when you when you see clients who are borderline uh, by just using the the term sloppily here and I don't mean it pejoratively, mm-hmm. but they they exhibit a very broad spectrum of behavior that gets called dysregulated and other kinds of things. And I just see young therapists get overwhelmed by the amount of affect that's in the room and the amount of content that's different from minute to minute about why things shouldn't be like they are is overwhelming. And if, if, if I can get therapists to see the function of what's going on in the room, it, it makes, um, the forest and trees problem answerable. Things start to look, you don't just see a bunch of individual trees. You, you see clusters of trees that all look alike, act alike, bloom at the same time, <laughs> go away at the same time. And it, it's usually not a monolithic thing that's going on in therapy, but it's not the, you know, a thousand different behaviors, all of which are distressing to the client. There, and the, more importantly to the therapist from my point of view, because that's who I'm supervising. Um, there, there are a few things that are going on and they're important things. Uh, and maybe it's, um, uh, it's a lot of avoidance behavior or escape behavior. Um, not everything is that, but that's certainly one set of controlling contingencies mm-hmm. um, that explain lots of clinical behavior. And certainly emotional avoidance in the ACT world is a huge way of conceptualizing things. Yes. And that conceptualization, if that's useful in understanding why behavior is occurring in the room as it is and what you can do to supply an environment where escape isn't reinforcing, but kind of staying with something is reinforcing, then then that's kind of that ideographic analysis. I mean, escape is a more nomothetic kind of notion, but how it appears in a particular case is much more ideographic Mm -hmm. and gives you, I think, a lot more flexibility to say, I have this hypothesis that when the client does this, it's because something has happened in the room that's aversive to them. It's not that this is autonomous behavior but it's under the control of what's going on in the moment between you and the client. Then you can vary your behavior. You can look to see whether or not people hang in with you a little longer or whether they escape faster or seek to escape faster. Mm -hmm. That gives you much more precision when you have that notion that escape is the termination of some aversive consequence 
um, that was occasioned by something that was going on right before that. This behavior will, this escape behavior will get reinforced by some reduction of something that's aversive in the environment, whether it's you having raised a tough issue, whether it's them having some private events that you don't have access to at the moment that they want to avoid. But that level of technical stuff is much more powerful for you, the therapist, than just saying uh, when the client doesn't do what they're supposed to do, that's avoidance behavior or escape mm. behavior. Mm. Eh. Yeah. And that's, that's a testable notion. And it yeah. ought to control your behavior as a therapist. And you ought to try different stuff based on your understanding of what could be the antecedent to that. Yeah. And then, and then you measure whether or not it actually mattered. And that's kind of the process um, research that people are talking about that um, Stefan Hoffman and Steve Hayes are writing about in their process-oriented um, CBT stuff whether it's CBT or ACT or anything, mm -hmm. that's just a, a level of bringing attention to what's going on in the therapy room that's causing change. It's not some generic thing. There are processes that we know about at the bench science level that we ought to be able to detect and bring into the therapy room and test that stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and that's the precision that, that kind of knowing the basic science as opposed to the uh, mid, middle level terms, I think, allows that I think is really valuable. Yeah, yeah. I, that's a, a very helpful, explicit way of, of, of coming, circling back to that for me and I think a lot of people. You know, and the, that, that notion has been around and gets re revitalized every few years by the uh, uh, treatment outcome research community to say there's the Gordon Paul phrasing of what therapy works for whom under what conditions and so forth back in the late 60s. Um, I've written about it not with anywhere near the fame of Gordon Paul. Alan Kazan's written about it and mechanisms, his emphasis on mechanisms of change. And then in the ACT community, certainly the stuff that Steve Steve and Stefan mm -hmm. uh, are writing now are just calls to get back to understanding what works and all the things we do. Some things work, some things don't. Some things we have a good explanation for. Some places our explanations are inadequate. My interest is in that level of things. Someone mm -hmm. else can have a different interest. And uh, you know, I'm not one to say that's a stupid interest. I'm saying I have my interests yeah. and you have yours. Yeah. They just take our attention really different places. I'm, you know, I go to some talks and I don't go to others and that's mm -hmm. legitimate. But okay. that's where my head's at and has been for a long time. And on that note, I'm just wondering on, you know, this um, experiential or emotional avoidance that's inherent in a lot of the act work. And, and I think, you know, FAP too. Um, uh, what if if someone's talking to me about like some facet of them that they don't like that they're used to like when when it comes up in their in their pri privately or you know publicly they they try to stay away from okay 
and in session, I'm working to, to, to help them stay with that rather than, you know, move away. What's reinforcing about that? How do I make as a clinician, how do I make that reinforcing and make sure that what I'm doing is reinforcing? Well, I, I think it's probably worthwhile to try. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about that. Okay. Um, but I think the importance of the therapeutic relationship can't be uh, overstated. And I, I, th I think you're competing with a, a history of saying that these kinds of things I'm thinking about right now feel aversive. Yeah. And the question is, what kind of competing set of contingencies can you offer that are larger than the, uh, the one with which they're familiar, but it's aversive to, to think about, yeah. you know, whether it was an abuse history or whatever else is mm -hmm. they're wanting to avoid the concomitant kinds of feelings. It has to be the case, or it, it would be useful if it were the case that talking with you is, and getting some notion that they're not a permanently scarred person or that talking with you actually about this is better than than avoiding talking to you about this stuff. And okay. that's, that's just like, I, I don't know how to do that, except that what I tell my students is you need to bring that part of you into the room that you reserve for people you really love and care about. And you show that kind of genuine, as yeah. opposed to pretend and um, willingness to hear that and care about it. Mm -hmm. I think empathy is a really strong thing to experience from other human beings who matter to you. And, you know, the, the kinds of um, biological preparedness that humans have make them, I think, prepared to be responsive to, to empathy and, and intimacy uh, closeness. They don't like things like loneliness and being, um, feeling disenfranchised from other relationships, but they're used to that. And they have, when they get kind of these feelings that they want to avoid, it's, it's because there's a long history of, if I let that go on, it's going to get even worse. And so you have to be a competing con set of stimulus conditions that say, if I hang with this, I'm going to get something with, from Marcel that feels better than me just going away from this feeling at the moment. Yeah, that's a, it's a hard thing to produce, but it is what has to happen. People have to emit an alternative behavior that gets reinforced. This is the matching law 101 yeah. in, from learning theory that people do what gets reinforced the most. Mm -hmm. this, I won't go into a long set of caveats about that, but that's the bottom line. Mm -hmm. And it's a pretty powerful kind of statement. And one of the things I teach in my learning theory class and then we talk about in supervision is when clients aren't doing what you want them to be doing, it's because there's another behavior that's reinforced more heavily. Your job is to figure out how to make you and whatever you want to talk about in therapy more reinforcing than avoidance. Yeah. 
not easy. But right. an awareness that that's going on at the principal level, I think, gives you some idea of what you ought to be doing. And your repertoire for inviting that behavior is much different than how I would invite that behavior in all mm -hmm. likelihood, and certainly different from uh, you know, how a young female graduate student would versus you know, an old Albert Ellis. professor. Pardon me? Albert Ellis. Albert Ellis, yeah, the like warm, we the warm, loving character from <laughs> from, from our nightmares. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and on the, I mean, on that note, you know, uh, part we, we, tr I mean, I find myself, uh, tr I've tried on different masks of, you know, caricatures of people I've learned from and, and then over time have developed my own repertoire. You know, I don't, I don't know if there's, there's other, I'm sure that people naturally fall into their own style differently, but that's, that was my, how I, I went about kind of being who I am in the therapy room. I think that's incredibly important to, to do, um, I've, any of us who've done supervision experience, young therapists saying, what should I do? And um, I'll, I can say, here's what I would do. Don't ever do that because <laughs> I have a long history of going through what you were talking about, Marcel, where you, you get comfortable with who you are and you know what it is that you when you're at your genuine best, bring into the room to people you care about that matters to them. And um, Chuck Furster, not Chuck, he's not like my best friend, he's Charles Furster, wrote this nice paper in around 1967, give or take a year or two, on the difference between natural versus arbitrary reinforcement. And natural reinforcement is when you behave with a client in a way that when those interactions are reinforcing um, are the same kinds of reinforces that they'll experience in the real world, like genuine caring and so forth. If they emit those behaviors that matter to you and you're not really odd, but you're a kind of a reasonable representation of what they'll run across in the real world and you establish those behaviors on the part of the client, they should, they should get reinforced in the real world because those contingencies naturally occur. If you say, the cl client says to you, you know, you're a terrible therapist. I get really bored in here. I hate coming in here. And you say, thanks for sharing. That contingency doesn't exist in the real world. Um, and their expressing emotion uh, it, it not going to get reinforced in the real world. And if you reinforce not with, great clarity what you're reinforcing there yeah. but i'm a nice it's, guy bill what else am i supposed to say come on yeah there's that <laughs> <laughs> so and I, I think the classic example is if you someone's about to go outside a young person about going outside and you say it's cold outside put your coat on and they put the coat on and it's it's maintained by you saying, put the coat on, and then it, you're reinforcing compliance for that. Yeah. That's an arbitrary reinforcement. And it's for your satisfaction as the person telling them to put the coat on. It's not for them. Mm -hmm. um, the natural reinforcer is they get outside and they stay warm. And that's, that's the control you want to bring their behavior under is the naturally occurring consequences. Uh. 
that will work given their environment and they're not all the same. I mean, I, preparing someone to go into um, an economically challenged environment is different than going into an affluent environment for the kinds of things they can emit that will be reinforced mm-hmm. in meaningful ways. Yeah. It's not a simple, it's not a simple world by any means. I don't mean to imply yeah. that you can give an M and M, which would be an arbitrary reinforcer um, in most circumstances uh, and get easy behavior change. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the questions that all of this brings up for me is, is <clears throat> some of the mechanisms that I understand um, at, that are at play in, in, in so much of what we're talking about here is falls under this, this realm of exposure. Right. Um, I'm wondering if, if, I don't know if there's some dangers in approaching so much of what we do as just exposure work is, is it, is it, well, you know, it's a heuristic and like any heuristic, it's going to have functions and utilities and it's going to have limitations. But if I could, if I could have invented and um, patented for royalties, any concept in psychotherapy that I think is a would pay off because people do it all the time, whether they recognize it or not. And B, that's got some basis in science. Um, I would have picked exposure. I mean, I think it. I, I think it actually is pretty foundational because what we're talking about in in exposure for many of the anxiety-related kinds of problems that come along, or you you can just think of exposure as saying you got to be open to adding on to your history because our behaviors is as a function of our history period mm-hmm. and people can argue about whether there's a, should be a period or a comma there. But anyway, I, as a behaviorist, I think behavior is determined and it's determined by a bunch of things, but uh, the one I have control over is, is history. I can, I can say you are where you are now because of history, biology, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. The only thing I can change, I can't change your genetic makeup at this point. Um, and I can't do anything except add on to your history. I can't change your history, except I can change it by adding on to it. And, you know, I, I've never used this particular metaphor before because I'm not a big metaphor jock, but which I can't be a, a an act therapist then, but um, <laughs> but you can say, you know, you m- imagine building uh, making a pot of stew and the, the first things you put in there are um, some water and some salt, you know, that doesn't taste very good, but that's the history of the pot right there. But I can keep adding into it. And as I add on to that, wherever it is now, isn't where it's going to be down the road, as long as you can keep adding to it. Mm-hmm. As soon as you say, I'm not going to add any more to it, that's where the soup is and it's going to stay there. But it can go from really bad tastes to really eloquent ones as it evolves. And someone, a new chef can come in and add to it and change it even more. So exposure is saying, uh, essentially, people s- expose themselves to a set of circumstances and have a different um, set of contingencies operate. And Maurer's two-factor theory of um, 
acquisition and, and maintenance of phobias is all about that. If you don't get people to experience a situation to see that the um, uh, unconditioned response doesn't occur, then they'll just go away. They'll never learn that that dog or that um, relationship isn't always going to lead to a bad consequence. Mm -hmm. They hang in there long enough to see that there are other consequences that happen. Then the information value of being seeing a dog or seeing a potential relationship changes. And I think that's a pretty robust process. There are things, if you look at respondent learning literature that tell you some things you can predict and some things you should and shouldn't do to make the outcomes more or less likely that the behavior gets strengthened or, or not, whether it's an appetitive behavior or an avoidance behavior, either one. Mm -hmm. there's, there's science about all that stuff. And I, from a therapy point of view, it's getting people to, to move their behavior to see that how the world actually works as opposed to the last time they checked, they thought it worked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interacting with it. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, and and uh, do you have any any go tos for um, helping people like you know literature around um, thinking functionally and, and functional assessment that that you send people to, or assign? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm much better at assigning than referring. To the, um, let me think about that. I'll think about that and, and maybe give you some links to put into and only in the following way. It's not that I don't have a whole list of them off yeah. the top of my head, but I'm trying to think about the ones that would be packaged in a way that would be halfway fun for people to, to look at. Um, yeah, screw them. It doesn't have to be fun. Okay. Well, Steve and I, Steve Hayes and I have written some things about yeah. uh, functional assessment. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think um, Haynes and O'Brien have written a whole bunch of stuff about it that's technical, but I think it, it gives you the nuts and bolts of how to think about it. With a lot of the functional assessment, functional analysis literature doesn't characterize the dynamic nature of what I think a, a functional case conceptualization does in therapy. Because if you think about what happens over therapy, and I don't do brief therapy, mm -hmm. um, just because I, I don't have control over enough variables to have a huge effect in a short amount of time for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, so as people develop new repertoires uh, as therapy goes on, the things that are, were important in therapy up until that point were important and we targeted those and so forth. And then as they develop new repertoires, they solve problems in their, their old version of their world, but now new opportunities open up. Mm -hmm. And what was never on the table before now shows up as a liability or a strength that never showed up before. Um, and so I have to change how I think what's going on in therapy functions now. And that process, I think, is really important that you, you get a foundation to say, here's where I need to start. 
and you can't take forever to do that, but it can't be haphazard either. Yeah. Um, and the, cause the client wants to make process, uh, progress, but as that progress unfolds, new strengths and weaknesses, new liabilities and assets will emerge as well, new opportunities. And so you want to, I think you have always have to say, are the things that I targeted in the beginning, still the relevant things for people to move towards their valued goals? And the answer is often, um, I should have changed what I was doing two months ago because we've either solved that problem or I haven't solved the problem and I should have if I had the right analysis. Hmm. Yeah, that, that, that is very, that's helpful to, to, um, to borrow as a, as a lens. Well, you know, I think one of the great things for graduate students if, is to appreciate the luxury they have of having supervision and for those practitioners who are in practice with uh, either by themselves but have agreements with others or their group practice says meets at some regular point in time to say how you doing on this case that you were stuck with before and i think that kind of dialogue and support is just keeps us from behaving autistically yeah uh, yeah in ways that are really great one of my, I've had dogs for lots of life and my favorite vet practice was in Seattle where Tuesday mornings the practice was closed and they just had a journal club and they had a case reports of dogs and they were willing to take the time out and then the loss of income to do that because it kept their practice better. And I'm sure it made it more interesting to talk to colleagues about something new. Mm -hmm. And I think... I think that's fabulous. I yeah. love supervision um, yeah. with yeah. my students because it keeps me thinking and it keeps them thinking. And I can't imagine just doing, you know, hours and hours and hours of private practice without yeah. lifting my head up to say, yeah, am I doing the, the right thing given who I am and what I can do? And mm -hmm. not everybody can do everything. And that's hardly a liability. That's, being in contact with reality. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm a firm believer in, in what you're talking about. I, I have a, a group that I meet with and we meet twice a month and, and, and do some, some real role plays and we, we get people to, to, to give us consultation. It's, it's fabulous. It's really fabulous. So, uh, well, uh, thanks so much, Bill, for, for chopping it up with me here today. Um, Oh, I really enjoyed it. I'd be happy to, to continue this conversation any yeah. time. Uh, I would love for you to come back and, and, uh, and continue to share the wisdom. I'd be happy to. I enjoyed it a lot. Thanks for inviting me. So. But I'm getting stronger. They take a piece of me. But I'm getting stronger. They take a piece of me, but I'm getting stronger. They take a piece of me.